Welcome to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, where your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak, help you go next level with your practice, leveraging the four pillars that make a practice bulletproof. Vision, building a dream team, marketing ninja, and financial freedom. Now, let's get into it. What's up, everybody? It's Dr. Craig Spodek of the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, and I recently completed a podcast with Dr. Howard Ferran. That was the Dentistry Uncensored podcast. We had a great time. We covered a ton of ground and uh, talked about everything from the future of dentistry to different types of practice models, uh, leadership, you name it, we covered it. Um, You know, when it comes to two guys like Howard and I, uh, with mild cases of ADD, we're gonna get pretty tangential, but um, I am really, really proud of what we discussed. I think there's awesome value here, and I look forward to sharing it with all of you. So please, if you like our podcast, if we're adding value, please comment on the link below. Thanks so much, and have a great day. It's just a huge, huge honor for me today to be podcast interviewing one of my role models, mentors, and idols, Craig Spodak, DMD, all the way from Delray Beach, Florida, who also has a podcast, Bulletproof Dental Practice. He's had 40 episodes. I'm a big fan of his show. Excellence in the practice of dental medicine is a proud tradition in the Spodak family. Dr. Craig Spodak is a third-generation dentist who earned his doctor of dental medicine degree from the acclaimed Tufts University, graduating with highest honors. He joined his father, Dr. Miles Spodak, in his practice in Delray Beach, Florida in 1998 with a dream to change the way patients experience dental care. He inherited the company in 2006 and immediately began to develop a new vision for the modern dental practice with a goal to deliver comprehensive dental care from a team of general and specialty dentists in one convenient 13,000 square foot state-of-the-art LEED LEED Gold certified facility. His dream was to change the way patients experience dental care and work tirelessly to reinvent the patient perception and just how great a dental appointment could be. All phases of dentistry are performed from a team of nine dentists in 18 operatories and surgical suites. In addition to having an on-site lab with lab technicians and master ceramists who provide same-day dentistry, he also places a strong importance on living out the company's core values, which enable the team to provide patients with the highest caliber of comprehensive dental care while consistently exceeding expectations. Dr. Craig is a pioneer for eradicating childhood tooth decay and founded the All-Star Smile Foundation with Marlin's All-Star Filter, Gina Carlo Staten in 2016. He is also committed to helping other dentists uncover costly fees they're paying for their 401k plans and was recently featured in Tony Robbins' new book, Unshakable, Your Financial Freedom Playbook, and the brand ambassador he is introducing the world to a next generation 401k plan. Dr. Craig has also committed himself to expanding his own professional skills and has garnered various advanced credentials, including becoming a top 1% provider of Invisalign. He also lectures nationally about the benefits of this teeth straightening method. Beyond his professional interests, Dr. Craig is very active in the Delray Beach community and currently serves on the board of directors for the All-Star Smiles Foundation that he co-founded with Marlon's All-Star Filter, Giancarlo Stanton, as a partner with... What is it? John Carlo. He's actually a Yankee now, but wow, this is a long bio, bro. All right. Well, we'll just get, we'll just, well, anyway, um, my gosh, I, uh, you're Tony Robbins dentist, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can say that safely because he put me in his book as such. I'm not violating HIPAA standards with that. And, and, um, my gosh, um, I had him on this show 
And it was the only one where the video file was corrupt. It's like, are you kidding me? I got Tony Robbins on the show, and it's a sound-only file. If you ever talk to him, do you you think he he would want to uh, uh, do that again? I mean, is he still promoting his 401k company? Yeah, I mean, um, getting Tony to commit to an hour of time, I think you'd have uh, uh, much better luck getting, uh, like, yeah, he's going to be pretty limited. He's going to be pretty limited. Do, do, do you call him? Do you talk to him? Um, yeah, Tony actually texts me. I, uh, he, okay, he well, says, he's he's lecturing in uh, Phoenix with uh, Gary V. Yeah, and yeah, tell him tell him I up. would uh, tell him I would do anything if him and Gary V stopped by the house for just thirty minutes. I'm right in Phoenix. I'm ten minutes from the airport. Him and Gary V come by. Uh, Dennis have the big big four hundred one ks. So it would be a great target market for him to get the 401k business. But my God, to have Tony Robbins and Gary Vee on the show in my house in Phoenix uh, when they fly in to do their seminar, it, that would have to be the coolest experience on earth. Hey, there's no harm in asking me to ask him, but I, I, he's a busy guy and I like to respect his privacy. But if it comes up and there's a, a, an opportunity for, for you to do that, you have a really large podcast and Big, big voice in dentistry. So, uh, but you it, know, that, but you know what, but you know why he'll do it is be, because uh, the same reason he came on my show, Grant Cardone came on my show twice. I've had the CEO of billion dollar dental companies like Stan Bergman of Shine and Marco of uh, Strawman. Successful people always find the time. It's the same thing at work. If you really have to get something done, you always give it to the busiest person in your deal. And then most people look around and say, well, oh, Shirley's not she, – she's not doing anything. She, she hardly does anything. I'll give it to her. And yeah, and she won't get it done. So people like Tony Robbins, the reason they're Tony Robbins uh, is because they just make time for everything. I remember when I called uh, Stan Bergman. I mean he's a S&P 500. I think he's ranked like 230 on the deal. And he's like, absolutely, tell me when. And I'm like – Tell me, tell you when you're, you're the man, you tell me when, I mean, that guy would have done it at three o'clock in the morning. If that was the only time to do, it. I mean, it's just amazing how totally successful people make a religion out of availability and they just always find the time. They always do what matters and they, they have a natural flair for marketing. They're always running for mayor. And, um, um, but anyway, um, so I'm, uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I'm a big fan of your YouTube videos. I mean, um, your YouTube video, um, this is my life's purpose, drcraigspaddock.com. Uh, uh, what makes us different is everything. I mean, you're, you're just a, so tell us about your journey. How did you become all that you became? Oh God. Um, well, I've always questioned, um, why, you know, I've always kind of been a observer of why we do certain things. And, um, when I got out of Tufts, I love the academic atmosphere of having all the specialists and all our lab under one roof. And uh, my dad and grandfather were, were general dentists. And my dad had a really kind of Brady Bunch style practice when I grew up. It was like it was built in the 70s. So here we are in the mid 90s and still had the split pea green carpet and the wood paneling. And I just couldn't wrap my head around being a dentist because I couldn't understand doing it in a different way. All I knew was my mom working the front desk, my dad doing his thing. And then, um, you know, I, I remember going into a Starbucks early on in maybe 1994 or 1993 in Washington, D.C. when I was at American University. And I saw this whole shift in the way retail and, and, and the way you could build and design a space. And the people knew my name and I had this frappadappuccino and they had a whole different language to it. And it like really opened up my eyes that retail was shifting. And I've always viewed dentistry as a branch of retail. 
And I just had an idea that, you know, my patients don't want to be shuffled around from spot to spot. The lab was located 30 miles away. And oftentimes I'd have to send patients down to the shitty lab where they'd have to do a custom shade in the back of a shopping center. And I said, I want to control the whole experience and make it better for them. And I'm obsessed with quality and I'm obsessed with dentistry. I love it. If we started talking dentistry, that'll be a good hour of just talking. I mean, I love teeth. and I love everything about dentistry. So my vision was to create a one-stop shop where everything was performed under one roof. So we had the academic nature of school and the camaraderie of school and all the very best technology and all the brains under one roof. That was what was what what born what gave birth to the idea. But it wasn't a business idea based on how to make more money. I actually made a conscientious decision that if I was going to make less money but do it this way, I'd rather do it this way. So, you know, the constant conversation is what's the best dental model? How, how can you make the most amount of money? I kind of had the opposite. I, it was developed out of what I thought was best for the patient. I thought money would show up as a product of that. Well, you mentioned the Brady Bunch. Your father had a Brady Bunch family. You know what I never understood, Ryan, about the Brady Bunch? Do you remember what his dad was on the show? No. Do you remember what his dad was on the show? Engineer? Nope. Uh, no. He was an architect. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. An architect with six kids in a two-bedroom house. Did that make any sense? I mean, in the 70s, it does. In, Japanese, in the Japanese culture, a two-bedroom house would probably house 10 people. My the gosh. One. So, so, he, so your dad was the, the Brady Bunch, six children in a two-bedroom house. But now you've got a 13,000-square-foot optory. So I, want, I, want to, I got so many questions for you. Now, are all these dentists, um, I'm, do you own the whole thing? Are they partners? How, how does that work? I'm in the process right now of taking on my first partner, a girl that's been with me for almost 10 years. Um, Dr. Patel? Uh, no, no. Actually, Patel has um, got engaged to a guy that lives in Chicago. I love her. She's a rock star dentist, and she's moving to Chicago. But she's moving to Chicago for love and family, so I got to forgive her for that. But um, leaves a vacancy in our practice, so if someone's listening and wants to be a part of our practice, uh, feel free to apply. Um, we're looking for a rock star. But no, it's Dr. Dudley, Dr. Tiffany Dudley. Um, she's going to be my first partner, and then the plan is is to take on all additional doctors as partners. I have a big thing. I, I, I say that people don't wash rental cars. And I think that if you want to create something, if you want to cultivate an ownership mentality, and I want all the doctors to have that ownership mentality, there's nothing that really gives it to them like actual ownership. Howard, in your practice, do you have partners or are you the sole owner? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I'm, I'm the sole owner of everything. I own 100% of everything. I have no partners. Um, you say people don't wash rental cars. It's so um, true. I mean, um, Let's just get to dentistry and censor. Let's get to the, uh, the, the, the nasty. Um, you know, these, these big DSOs, you know, if they were really profitable, they were really returning uh, um, profit on capital invested, they'd all be publicly traded on NASDAQ, but not one of them are. Now, um, you and I are old enough to remember when I got to school in 87, 30 years ago, Orthodox Centers of America, you know, they did a big rollout. They made it onto the New York Stock Exchange. But the problem was that every orthodontist the practice that they bought, it was a roll up. It was a roll up. They just got a hundred million dollar line of credit and started rolling up these orthodontic practices. They'd say, okay, Craig, you got to save me three years. Well, in three years and one nanosecond, they all ran. <laughs> and then they replaced that guy who was a stud muffin and with some young kid that came out of school and the sales plummeted and, and it was, you know, delisted and fell apart and all this kind of stuff. Like that. When you go, when I talk to practice management consultants, like, um, 
um, gosh, uh, Sandy Pardue, Laura Hatch, any of these um, people, they sit there and say, when I'm lecturing all these big group practices, the owner's taking all these notes and is totally focused, and then all the associate dentists are sitting there on their smartphone uh, surfing Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And then when, and then when the, the person owns his own car and you got a toothache, Craig's in there saying, man, my tooth hurts. And he's saying, well, it's a molar root canal. It's going to be tough, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And he's incentivized. He's got a bunch of dad. He owns a practice, and he does it. The associate's is like, oh, you need an endodontist. Wisdom teeth come in. Oh, you need an oral surgeon. Um, you know, they just refer. They just sit there and refer all day long. They don't take any heart. And so, so in my walnut brain, I've already seen the whole publicly traded thing from NYSC, Orthodontic Centers of America, to it does on NASDAQ. I already watched all of those implode. And then they went away. Now they're all back. And they're all saying they're taking over the world, but Wall Street doesn't even want to talk to them. And, um, and their uh, associate turnover uh, in, in private practice and DSOs is, is incredibly high. I mean, you know, the, the, these millennials, dentists, are, they're only working a year or two. When I'm in dental school, they say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm a woman and I want to have some babies. I think I just want an eight to five job and then I want to concentrate on being mom. I don't, I don't want to worry. I don't want to be a business owner in evenings and weekends. I just want to be a mom. And I say, okay, well, if that's, if that's a really great idea – then your class of 2018, so go back to like class of 2013, five years ago, and write down a list of all these women dentists who had the same great idea and are still working at those DSOs because what I see is they do that for about a year and then they all quit. And I mean, well, I, I, I met a woman dentist. Statistics show otherwise, though. Statistics, what, show that? That, statistics show otherwise. There's a statistic that if they work in a corporate, like a DSO, I don't want to cut, paint with broad brushstrokes here, but if they work at a DSO, for more than two years, the statistic probability is they'll stay there for seven to 10. So it's either they go in and go out like almost like an AGD or GPR, or they get stuck after two years and they're stuck for good. Cause it does kind of shape you. I think working in that environment. Well, what, what percent, um, uh, jump out before two years and what percent pass the two year tipping point and stay seven. From what I heard, most jump out prior to two years. But so what is most? Percent- yeah, 80%, 70%. Um, that's, that's what I remember learning um, from, from a reputable source that most will jump out. But you got to remember when Heartland and all these places are sponsoring your freshman orientation, you're entrenched in the educational system. Like Hugh Freedy had our instruments at, um, um, at Tufts. I got out and got Hugh Freedy instruments. Or ADEC had our chairs. I wanted ADEC. So imagine if, you know, the big DSOs are sponsoring your freshman orientation or, you know, the cocktail, the social, I mean, it's kind of, they're, they're in, they're almost like, you know, they're in, they're part of your ecosystem. Yeah. So, um, so you want your associates to have skin in the game. So you're saying that Dr. Uh, Tiffany Douglas, is that what you said? Dr. Tiffany Douglas is going to be your first partner? Yeah. I mean, you got to understand too, historically, I've done some pretty, massive risk-taking endeavors. I went from, you know, 4,000 square feet and $6,000 a month in rent to 13,000 square feet and $35,000 in rent. So people have not always wanted to jump on. I've had partnership conversations with other people, you know, back when we were doing, you know, two or $3 million of gross. And I'm like, Hey, I think this is a really good time. And they're like, wow, you're freaking crazy, man. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to jump on with this because, you know, it takes, it takes some, fortitude and some vision. Um, so I think this point, 
you know, the practice is stable and the growth is good and there's no, I'm not building another 13,000 square foot uh, uh, rooftop uh, addition. So people can feel more uh, good about long-term investment. And I want my doctors to share in that long-term reward because I do believe that a practice like ours is sellable or has some intrinsic value. So I, I don't want them to just be hired guns. I want them, oh, who's that? My granddaughter, Lexi, who turned seven Lex yesterday. Oh, you big girl. Prettiest girl in the world. Um, so so I want you, that skin in the game. What's that? I just want that skin in the game. I think that, you know, I've done a lot of research on employee-owned companies, ESOPs. You know, there's a local grocer down here that's all employee-owned. I just think when everybody's pulling on the rope in the same direction at the same time, it creates better alignment. And, that, and let's face it, at the end of the day, a practice like mine or a practice like yours, if someone wanted to write a big fat check to us, they'd say, hey, Howard or Craig, you need to stick around for a blank number of years. You'd be handing out money to your associates anyway. Like, hey, Dr. Jones, I know you've been working with me for 10 years. Stick out another three. So between now and then, and even if I don't sell, I'm not, I don't have no plans to sell, but between now and then, it's great to have that alignment. And I think people, you know, Dr. Dudley in particular, she's the type of person that's acted like an owner this whole time. It's not like I'm giving her some golden carrot, like, hey, step up your game and become, think like an owner. She actually behaves that way. So that's my only advice. If you have someone that's already acting like an owner, treat them like one. If you think you have someone that's disengaged and a little bit of money is going to change their behavior, no way. That's my advice. So do you have specialists too? You have oral surgeons? Yeah. What, what, what specialists do you have? Oral surgery, perio, prosto, endo. And I have, I have a couple like uh, independent contractor, MD anesthesiologist to put people to sleep too. And um, so you have a, a, or now you have a full-time oral surgeon or an oral uh, surgeon comes in once a week? Go, go, go through the oral surgeon, um, periodontist, okay. prostodontist. What would you okay. say? Oral surgeon? Oral surgeon, perio, prosto, endo. Okay. So endo, endo is always two days a week. Um, to like kind of three quarter days and he wanted to just be one day a week. So now he has this crazy one day a week where he's um, like literally eight to five. Um, and then uh, oral surgery was always historically full time. And that drove a lot of my decisions. I was really adamant about having full time oral surgery because there was one time that a kid in the local high school got hit with a lacrosse stick and broke his jaw. I thought it was really cool to have full time oral surgery. And I don't know if necessarily know it. Uh, if, if that model makes sense for my type of practice. So now we have just a couple days, uh, one day a week, actually, oral surgery now. Oh, no, two days a week, sorry. Two days a week, oral surgery. Perio's one day a week. Prosto, he's like a super duper gent dentist. He's like a, a jack of all trades. So he's four days a week, and he's doing a very wide scope. My practice, I'm almost, I'm just entirely doing Invisalign by myself. I practice a lot. I do a lot of dentistry. The people in my local community would have no idea that I actually see patients because I figure I'm like some like CEO type. I do a lot of dentistry. I love doing dentistry. I don't know if it's a good thing for me. We all do things that we love to do, even though they may not be the highest and best use of our time. So I'm looking at that right now. I'm making sure that that's a really good use of time because I do enjoy it. So I just do it. Yeah. Men mental health is a big thing. Uh, um, you know, um, so oral surgeon to as uh, one day a week, Periodontist one day a week. Prostodontist four. Two. Oral surgeries two. Two. Oral, sorry. Oral surgeries two. Perio yeah. one. Prosto four. Endo one. And then GPs full and time. And then how, how many how many GPs to support that? How, uh, how many GPs do you have? We have five. 
uh, two are actually departing for life um, reasons that have been me a while, with me a while. So it's creating a little bit of a, a challenge. I'm, I'm a firm believer. I'm a spiritual guy. I believe that God gives you only what you can handle. And I believe that there's something good coming out of this. Um, but uh, it's a little bit of a challenge right now because the, the timing's wrong. They're both kind of departing at the same time. They've been with me for many, many years. But, you know, Dennis always tell me, their HR blues and everything. And I, and I always tell them, I said, dude, that, that's the only problem in all of man-made organizations. I mean, like if you go to the, uh, I, don't, I don't care if you're the New England Patriots. I don't care if you're the Arizona Cardinals. I mean, if you go to the, if you go to the New England Patriots, they don't say, well, my problem is the stadium and we don't know if it should be the grass or artificial grass or, or oh, our Instagram account. I mean, that, that, that has nothing. I mean, if you think your biggest problem is trying to figure out molar endo, then you're not even wise enough to know what your biggest problems are. Your biggest problem. I mean, my, my book, uh, Uncomplicated Business, you only manage people, time, and money. People's 80% of the game, and it'll be your biggest source of stress when you're 80 years old. I mean, I don't care if you won the Super Bowl five years in a row. Eventually, your Peyton Manning is going to get a cracked, broken neck or whatever. I mean, you're always one employee away from starting the whole process over. So I always tell my team, <laughs> yeah. I got I got Human a dozen. Beings are messy. Human beings are messy. Yeah, you know, I, my, my Leah uh, just celebrated her 19th anniversary with me the other day. Uh, my Lori uh, is 20 next month. I mean, I got Ken, Tom Giacobbe. I, I got a whole mess of people that have been with me 20 years. Um, but um, even your 20-year veterans, hell, I had an assistant just, shy, just one month shy of 30 years uh, moved on. And I mean, it's, it's HR is everything, but, but mastering how to attract and retain quality key people is an art. So I want to ask you that these kids get out of school. They're, they're, um, you know, they, they associate for three or four years. I, I, it seems like most of the associates around in a Phoenix that I talked to in a podcast and, um, they associate for about five years and that five years, they'll have like six or eight different jobs in five years. And, um, then they open up their own. So my question to you is, um, leadership. I mean, so, so a lot of them are worried about leadership that, you know, the people get accepted in dental school, got A's in calculus, physics, geometry, they're introvert, they're shy. Um, a lot of them are like tiny little girls. And if you're a tiny little girl, I want you to go see the movie RBG, Ruth Bader, um, what was her last name? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg. And uh, that was amazing because she was a little tiny person, but man, her mind was the largest person on the Supreme Court bench. But so, but you're six foot five, you're tall, dark, and handsome. Do you think a lot of your leadership is because you were just born a six foot five leader? They say all the presidents of the United States were all over six foot tall. Um, what, what advice would you give to a little five foot four little shy girl who's going to go buy a practice and then she's got to be a leader. Okay. So, so here's my spin on this. So there's real leadership and there's storybook leadership and real leader people, people are, people are uh, appointed a leader or a manager. And all of a sudden they put on this air that they have to start bossing people around, tell people to do shit and delegate and put a suit on. They've never, you know, someone has never worn a suit in their life. They're like, I'm a leader. I'm going to do this. And I think real leadership is putting other people's needs above yourself. Real leadership is a servant leadership. It's, it's the ability to think of yourself literally last, everybody, um, everybody before yourself. And I think that storybook leadership, whether that's, uh, you know, William Wallace 
uh, from Braveheart or, or, you know, or these iconic tales, these tall or dark, dark, tall, dark and handsome people. That's not really effective leadership. I think there's tons of leaders that are like the dentist you're talking about, five foot nothing and demure <laughs> and just kind of like just there's there, you got to understand there's not one style of leadership and what we are taught is storybook leadership the guy charging out in front with the sword drawn leading troops into battle that's bullshit that doesn't actually help as much uh, that's not even effective leadership there's tons of tales like when you read tim collins good to great or all these other business books there's amazing leaders that are out there that you never knew existed because they made it. They made their teams feel like they were the ones coming up with the idea and executing. The best leader is the one you, you don't even feel. You actually, Lao Tzu has a wonderful quote. He says, a leader should be like, and I'm paraphrasing it, but a leader should actually be so far back behind the scenes that the team actually feels like they came up with the idea and executed it themselves when the leader actually did it. So that is the highest form of leadership, in my opinion. The people that cast big shadows, and I do cast the big shadow, physically and emotionally. I'm intense. That's not. I can be a. I could be a subtractor and not a magnifier, a multiplier. There are much, much different, many different types of leadership, and I don't want people ever telling themselves that they don't have what it takes. Because if you can put other people's needs ahead of your own, you are a leader. If people are coming to you asking for advice or support, you are a leader. If people are becoming more because of you, you're a leader. That's my that's my little monologue on that. But I think that the, the tall um, people that cast big shadows physically and emotionally actually do more harm than good. They leave vacuums. Look at Lee Iacocca, this iconic leader that walked in a what was it Chrysler he was in? Right. He like no one or even Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs like you couldn't even bring up an idea around Steve Jobs. He jumped on your freaking throat. And that, and he actually said, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to give you guys, my whole executive team, the next five years of ideas. He left the vacuum when he, when he passed on. So I think the best leaders are the ones that transform culture and replace themselves. You know, my favorite um, example of a leadership, as I always tell people, you know, in my lifetime, very few companies – uh, stocks have passed a 30,000% growth. I mean, th- these are the biggest, fastest growing companies of my lifetime. And one of them was Walgreens. And I always say, who, is the, who was the CEO of Walgreens who led this 30,000% march? Can you give, him his, give me his name? Sam Walton. No, that's Walmart. I said, oh, oh, well, yeah, I'm Walgreens. Sorry. Uh, no, never heard of him. Yeah, and, and that's the... Per- that's the classical S&P 500 CEO, Greg Wasson, they're operators. Um, you know, it, it, they, they put everybody before themselves. They don't take any credit. They're, they're, they're back in their desk. They're back in their cubicle. Hollywood, uh, exactly. They, they want the CEO to be this larger than life fair character that drives a Ferrari and has all the hot chicks and blah, blah, blah. And that's not what they are. They're, they're operators. They're introverts. They're quiet. They're shy. They're operators. And that is the majority of all the S&P 500 uh, billionaires and, um, and small businesses that do three to five million dollars a year. They're all introvert, quiet people who put their team members first. If, if they need a press conference, they got a person in marketing that'll do that. If they got, you know, they, they, and they also lead with a very long leash. They attract the best people and get out of their way. I think the only reason I got a dozen people have been with me 20 years is because um, I don't micromanage their job. I mean, if this is your department, it's your department. In fact, one of my most common e- emails 
um, that back to my team, they'll say, you know, I'm thinking about doing this or this. What do you, what do you think? And I go, well, it's your call. I, my job is to find the best people and get out of their way. If I owned a football team, I'm not going to sit there and be calling in plays. I mean, my, my only, my only job as the owner is if you're the head coach of my football team, you know, are you the best head coach? And, you know, I'm not going to manage you during the season, during the game, any of that, but at the end of the season, you know, or at the end of your contract, maybe we have to reevaluate if you're the best person to lead this team. But you just don't micromanage. You give them a long leash. Um, a lot of people are probably wondering, um, for this big machine you have, I mean, a 13,000 square foot, how many operatories did you say? 18. 18 operatories. How do you feed that with new patients? Do you have like a marketing department? Are you a marketing machine? What percent of collections do you spend on marketing? Do you do it in-house? Do you outsource it to 2%? Yeah. So um, we do have an in-house marketing person, but you know, everybody that wants to, everybody that, that I meet wants to pick my brain on our marketing. You know, they want to know what magazine ads or what we're doing with Google and stuff like that. And, um, I'm always uh, giving them, surprising them when I tell them we, we don't really have a large marketing budget. The marketing, the 2% of our, of our collections that we allocate towards marketing, of that, maybe 40, 50% is spent right back on the patients. So things like that, we, we give them, or we do a lot of promotions and we reward referrers with a contest that we do. Um, when you refer a patient, you, you enter into a drawing, you get a lot of cool stuff from that. But um, as far as like magazine ads and doing stuff like that, we don't really do that. We, we think that our marketing is, is highlighting and amplifying our culture. Um, you know, in business, it's always the customer's always right. In our practice, it's the, you know, patient, it's not the patient's always right. It's the team, the team first concept. And we put our team ahead of everybody else. That's what we try to do because we want our patients to feel loved and they can't feel loved unless the team feels whole and supported. Obviously with people that have 20 year tenure, you're doing that just automatically, Howard. That's, that's how you operate. But for many of us dentists, we go to dental school and the minute someone starts giving us an idea, we jump down their throat saying like, where'd you go to dental school? You know, what, why are you giving me ideas? Like I'm like, um, we have frail ego, some of us. So I think it's really supporting the team as, as a way to market your practice because patients are looking for that experience. And even though you can deliver the most careful um, chair side care and do all the right things, if your team is disengaged and happy, your work isn't as good. So I believe that the marketing has to start with wowing your team and creating raving fans out of your team. And then secondarily, that will create raving fans out of your patients. If your patients don't know who you are, you know how many times I've asked a patient, like, who's your dentist? They have no idea who his name is. They tell me he's right by Walmart. I'm like, well, how long have you been going? I, I don't know, 10 years? They don't even remember his name. It's just that they're, they're commoditized. They're dentists. They don't really... Um, have any affinity towards them. If your patient doesn't know who you are and, and has that low of affinity, you have really nothing but a, a tenuous relationship with them that's ripe to be changed the minute you decide to go out of network with a, with a one contract or one insurance company or change your hours. Well, you know, I don't think um, I, I don't think a lot of people in dentistry and medicine realize how their success turned them into a commodity. I mean, you go back into, you know, last century, you go back into the early 1900s all the way to 1950. 
dentists, physicians. Um, there was so much quackery going on. Hell, there was so much quackery going on. I mean, the, the greatest book I ever read in healthcare was Paul Starr's book that's got a Pulitzer Prize, The Rise of the American Healthcare System. It was so bad in one fell sweep, the government set up 50 state boards and told them that every medical school and dental school had to be licensed by the state board. Every doctor that came out had to be tested and licensed. by. So these state boards became the judge, the jury, the executioner, because medicine and dentistry was so quackery. All these people riding through the hillside saying, oh, take this lotion or potion. They all had the same ingredients, heroin, opium, cannabis, alcohol, and, okay. and, and yeah, cocaine. And it was so bad that these state boards are, they're, they're worse than anything Mao Sung ever did. I mean, they, they sit there and they can close down an dental school. When they did that fell sweep, they closed down 90% of all the medical and dental schools in, in basically a year, they were, they called them diploma factories. And, but so then medicine started their ascent of being an evidence-based deal. Well, they got so damn good that when you listen to people talk, they say, oh yeah, my husband, he, his appendix ruptured over the weekend. We called the ambulance, they took him to the hospital. Well, they called the ambulance. They didn't tell the ambulance where to take him. They just took him to the hospital. They assume every emergency room is the same they're all high quality and you say well why did you go to chandler why didn't you go to scottsdale memorial oh well i i mean i don't know that was the closest one they so so we got so good that the consumer and a lot and a lot of the dso chiefs are picking up on this that even though they have rapid dental turnover that the mindset of the american and the australian is that well, if you're a dentist, I'm sure you know how to do a filling, a crown, or a root canal. So we got so damn good, there's not even a question that maybe uh, Chandler Memorial Hospital isn't as good. Maybe you shouldn't go there if you have an emergency heart attack and need a bypass. Maybe you should go uh, to another hospital, or maybe you should go to Gilbert, Mesa, Glendale, Phoenix. So we got so good, we became a, a commodity. Um, that, that's kind of interesting. I want to go back to marketing, though, because... Um, By the way, same thing, same thing with the airlines, Howard. I was like forever, my dad was like flying this airline called Allegiant, which is a regional carrier where we are. And I'm like, dad, like that, they're flying all the shit planes now. Like, I don't want you flying on that. Like, what do you mean? Like people are like, well, listen, if it's the FAA clears this airline, it's, it's going to be fine. 60 Minutes just did a story on them just recently that they've had like so many violations and so many maintenance shutdowns and mid-engine failures and all this stuff. It's, it's true. The American public is dumbed into this idea that it wouldn't be legal if it wasn't safe. Like right now we have like what, 20, 30% of dental lab work being sent to places like China. You know, there's little to no regulation. Like, so when I try to tell patients that, they're like, what are you talking about? You, you're not allowed to send, like, you're not even allowed to put Chinese drywall in my house. How can you put Chinese crowns in my teeth inches from my brainstem? You know, like, you know, I mean, so there is this, the American public, we're, we're a little bit asleep at the wheel, presuming that the government is here to protect us. And it's buyer beware. You got to know what you're dealing with. And I think there is a now awakening to that. And now people, when you go to a restaurant and the waitress, you know, you ask them, hey, what do you recommend? They say, well, I've never eaten here before. Consumers don't resonate with that. Consumers are resonating. Even if you go to Carabas now, there's like, you know, this whole story. Even a, a chain restaurant will give you the story about the food, the experience behind it. Lime caught whatever fish and it's marinated by Uncle Susie's recipe or Uncle uh, John's recipe or whatever. So people are contriving stories. And it, to kind of go into your marketing conversation, marketing as a definition was hiring a company to create a compelling story about you. 
My, my thing that I always say is either craft something, craft a story that's compelling enough to talk about or pay some jackass that doesn't even know you to craft a story that's compelling. I mean, the more authentic way is to make yourself worthy of being talked about. So if you can create a great experience, what that means where the patient actually feels loved and connected, that's what a patient wants. The patient of today doesn't just want it faster and better and less expensive. They want it all that. Plus, I want to make sure the doctor that cared for me actually, I feel like he loves me or cares about me or she loves or cares about me. That's the new standard, I think, in my opinion. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Craig Spodak from the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, and I am super fired up to talk to you guys about our summit happening October 12th and 13th at the beautiful St. Regis Hotel in Atlanta. This is the opportunity to learn everything we've accumulated over the last 20 years of dentistry and business management. We're leaving it all on the table. There's nothing to sign up for afterwards. This is just two days of intense learning and mastermind sessions. We strongly encourage you to bring someone in your office that's a stakeholder, not just an employee, but someone that's actually following you and treats your business as their own. Because if you come back from this thing all fired up and you don't have your first follower or someone to help implement, it's gonna be very difficult. So once again, October 12th and 13th at the beautiful St. Regis Hotel in Atlanta. Registration is filling up very, very quickly and the tickets are almost sold out. So go to Bullet bulletproofdentalpractice.com forward slash summit and reserve your spot today. See you soon, people. Well, you know, you talked about a legion and they, they come to Mesa too. It's kind of an interesting niche play. What they do is they, they do nonstops to all these uh, smaller cities that, that the big boys like Southwest can't go to. But look at Southwest Airlines. You know, they always told us in MBA school, that, you know, quality, service, price, pick two. Well, I'm pretty sure Southwest picked all three because they just now had their first death in an airline. I mean, I remember when U.S. Air, a plane fell out of their sky every year for eight years in a row. So to fix that, they decided to buy America West, and then they were swallowed up by American. And and Southwest Airlines, uh, number one in um, takeoff, and, and I, I always fly Southwest because – I have to speak. I can't do the American deal where you go there and the plane's a half empty, so they cancel the flight and put you in a hotel. Southwest Airlines, number one takeoff, landing, and there's no lost baggage because you're flying point to point. There's no uh, uh, hub and spoke. But they just finally had their first death because a piece oh. broke off an engine, broke the window, and sucked this lady's head out. I used to always sit by the window, but now I make Ryan sit by the window, and I sit by the aisle. And, yeah, he uh, looks like a big guy. He could probably take a piece of shrapnel pretty easily. <laughs> and uh, and and and, but it's the um, and also I I think the emotional like like people always worried about airlines when thirty thousand Americans die in a car. Uh, Phoenix is ground zero for driverless cars. They have Uber down here. They have Google. Yeah. What's Google's Wham Whammo Whamco Waymo? Yeah, and, I rode uh, in that thing in know, Vegas. They they, cool. they had they had their first death in Tempe. And it was headline news around the clock, and not one media company reported the story that that same day a hundred people were killed in a car driven by a human. Well, I mean, when, journalism when is only about selling ads. I mean, they just yeah, want to well, engage you with hysterical stories. They they don't want to do any journalism. 
Well, when someone dies in a car, somehow the human brain says it's their fault. When someone dies in a plane, they're a victim, and we can all identify with the fact that they had no control over it. But to your point, you are so much more likely. You could fly every day per vehicle mile. Aviation is so much safer. But you're right. I fly privately. I'm a private pilot. And every time a small Cessna, like a little 172, goes down in any part of the United States or the world, it makes national news. On I-95 here in, in South Florida, there's probably 15 people that died today. You're not even going to hear about them. But um, Allegiant, to speak to profit and maintenance, they were the most profitable airline, actually. They were kicking ass profit-wise because they weren't maintaining their planes. So to the, to, to the DSO correlation... DSOs can maintain a huge metric of profitability because they're preying, and I'm not saying all DSOs are bad, I don't want to go into that whole rabbit hole, but they can maintain a very high degree of profit because the American public says a dentist is a dentist, a crown is a crown. Why would I pay you $1,500 or $2,000 for a Strauman or Nobel implant when there's a guy down the street that will give me the implant and crown for $400? And then we as dentists have to say, hey, well... That implant comes in a box, it's $20, they're making their lab work in China, I don't want that in my mouth. Why are we having to carry that value proposition to the patient? That's, that's the frustrating part about, you know, and, and unfortunately, patients can't ascertain their quality. If patients could ascertain the quality of the dentistry being done, this conversation would be moot because they'd be going to people like that care, but they don't know. They just know that the guy was nice, it didn't hurt. And even if the root canal fails in three years, the guy who did it's probably going to take it out and do an implant so they manage their own failures. So the dentist is like kind of graduating them through all their different dental treatment. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So when you're, um, when you're you know, one of the, I always talk about the funnel. I want well, you go through your funnel. Um, you know, the average dentist is doing, is collecting about 750 and they're taking on 175. Okay, the average specialist is collecting about a million and taking home 330. So let's look at the the, um, the, um, the the general dentist, you know, collecting 750, taking home 175 or 174. They do that at the end of this funnel. And the funnel is 100 people have to land on their website before three engage and call the office. Three people have to call the office before the receptionist can, can convert one to come in. And three people have to come in with an interproximal radiographic cavity on a bite wing before one person converts to have a filling, drill fill, and bill done. So to do that, to do that 750 and take home 174 of that one filling, uh, to do that, you know, to do that one filling, three had to come in. For three to come in, nine had to call. For nine to call, how many would have had to land on the website? Well, it, well, if a hundred people, if a hundred people had to land on the website for three to engage, three have to call for one to come in, and three have to come in to do one filling. So do so back out the math on that. So for one filling, uh, three have to come in. For three to come in, nine have to call. For nine to call, uh, nine to call, three hundred people would have to land on your website. So I mean. Talk about the funnel. I mean, the den- and, and then you ask the dentist, well, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, well, Gordon Christensen's coming in town, and I'm going to go spend the whole day learning about bonding agents. I'm like, dude, is that your problem? All your yeah. fillings are debonding and falling out? 
No, yeah. I don't have that problem. Well, what are you doing in the afternoon? Well, then he's going to talk about wear rates of microfills and bulk fills. and So that's your problem? All your fillings are falling out and wearing down? No, I don't have that problem. Then why, then why are you spending eight hours learning from the god of dentistry about bonding and fillings, which I think is insane because I, I just got one rule of thumb on supplies. If you sell a billion dollars a year of this stuff to dentists who have eight years of college and are the most anally retentive paralysis by analysis people, you can't sell 3M sells over $1 billion of stuff a year. I'm sure it works. I declare over a uh, billion a year. Danaher, $17 billion. Um, so Densply Serona, $4 billion. You can't sell $4 billion worth of stuff to doctors of dentistry because it doesn't work. I'm sure if you buy a bottle of glue from Ivoclair, it's extremely gluey. So let's go back to that funnel. Okay. So 300 people have to land on your website for nine to engage. For those nine to engage, only three come in. And those three come in, we do one filling. So if you fix anything on that funnel, you could double your practice. So talk about the funnel. Well, when you're talking about that, I can't help but think of Starbucks, okay? So Starbucks comes along, you know, what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and um, wants to sell a $3.50 cup of coffee. No one will invest with Howard Schultz because he thinks he's freaking bonkers because the average cup of coffee at that time is 35 cents. I'm like, who's going to buy a $3.50 cup of coffee? And whenever I go anywhere now, there is a line around the corner for Starbucks. Starbucks could probably raise their prices 20%, 30%. The lines of Starbucks in Vegas, like when you go through the conventions, I can't even go to Starbucks because I can't access it. So there is Starbucks has created such a value proposition that people want that. They want it. They took a lot of capital to, to, to convince the market that they wanted to get a Frappuccino when all they really wanted was a cup of coffee. They didn't even know what all that stuff was. But he convinced the market that that's what it needed. And I love this thing that Henry Ford says, if I would have listened to the public, I would have built a faster horse. So the consumer does not know what they want. The consumer does not know what they want. They don't know that they want to have the crown. That They don't even know that the crown could be done in a day. They don't know that going to the dentist could be an experience that they look forward to. They don't know that they that there's a dentist out there that will that will ease their um, anxiety and they'll finally be able to have dentistry comfortably. They only know dentistry is a scary place because no one's reinventing it. No one's doing it differently. So every day, patients come to our practice and say, this feels very different. Some people are like, this is crazy. I don't like this. It's so big. I really want to go back to my old guy. That's fine too. But if you are going to slip into the sea of sameness and do what everybody else is doing, you're going to get the same results and you have to compete on that level. So what I say to the funnel is, yes, if you don't have a compelling offer or experience, you're going to have to kiss a shit ton of frogs to meet the right people. But if I'd say if you would invest in your team and your experience, you could differentiate yourself enough that you could affect your funnel, both on the intake and the acceptance rate by a couple percentage points. Everybody thinks they need to grow things by 50, 60%. You just need to grow 10 things by two or 3%. And that will give you the, that will give you the exponential success. There's no, everybody looks for the one fell swoop of success. Just, just make sure that 98% of the people that leave your practice have another appointment uh, booked. That's the single metric that actually creates the most amount of value for your practice. 
Are they walking out with another appointment booked? It's not production per patient. It's not um, patient seen. It's just that. So you need a massive freaking funnel if 50% of your patients are saying, I'll call you for my next hygiene appointment. You're going to lose them. We all talk about new patient count. No one talks about net patient growth. So it's the number of new patients you got. Everybody's so proud. They got 100 patients, 50 patients, 80 patients. How many patients in that given month that you got 80 became 18 months and one day late on their hygiene? Because if you got 50 new patients and 60 became 18 months and one day uh, past due, you actually lost 10 patients that month. Net patient growth, negative 10. Why is no one talking about that? That's what, that's what retail talks about. Starbucks is like, yeah, McDonald's, the average McDonald's customer goes once every seven days. Can we sell a product that they go once or twice a day? Or can we sell a product where they go five times a week? And that's what Starbucks did. Don't you, think so Star- just think- Don't you think Starbucks have a marketing campaign where they have Paul McCartney saying, latte it be? I think that would be really – you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email Howard Schultz and say that's my idea because I think that's so genius. That could make me <laughs> millions of dollars. Ryan starts singing, latte it be. And, yeah. uh, but, but I mean, Starbucks didn't, ha- didn't have an advertising budget. They didn't advertise. I mean, I know they do now, but the first couple of years they didn't. Look at Disney. Look at how people are buying. You, you can't even get a reservation at the new restaurant at Disney, which is overpriced and crazy. I mean, for two years – Disney cruises are the most expensive cruise line out there. You can't get on a Disney cruise this whole summer. Like you can get on Royal Caribbean. You can get on Carnival right away. So why in dentistry are we just talking about like holistically dentistry? Why is it that we're all the same? You, know, we, you have to differentiate yourself. And the guy that's going to Gordon Christensen to learn how to polish his preps better, to your point, that is not the best and highest use of his time. Everything in dentistry is an upsell. The only thing medically necessary is an extraction. Everything else is an upsell. You don't need your teeth. It's nice to have them. You don't need them. So that's retail. So we have to think of things in retail segments, and that's, that's what Pete and I are always trying to work on with our podcast is really trying to push it to the next level, and I learn a lot from him, and, and that's, like, that's, where, that's our zone. If you want to talk about how to um, get more patients, just sign up on every insurance. Take HMO. Take capitation. You'll, you'll be busy. If you want to be busy, there's a million ways for dentistry to be dentists to get busy. You, you're talking about Disney, though, and you just gave me an ulcer, and I'll, I'll tell you why. You know, Netflix stock passed Disney. Now, we're talking about rodeos. You know, the greatest thing about being 55 years old, besides all my amazing grandchildren, is that, um, you know, I graduated from high school in 1980, and the economy tanked. Interest rates were 21%. We had double-digit inflation, unemployment. Then seven years, and then it all came back. Then 87, I graduated from dental school in May. Then October is Black Monday. The market fell a quarter in one day. And then it went on a long haul, the internet boom, and then that all came to an end, the Y2K internet boom, March 2000, that bubble popped. And then it went for about eight years, and then we had Lehman's Brother Day and um, September 15th, and that popped. Well, now it's 2018. What am I seeing today? You just mentioned Disney, and Disney Cruises, and Disneyland, and Disney World, and Disney Europe. Netflix is an internet company that now has a higher valuation than gosh darn Disney. Um, Amazon is about to reach the market cap of a trillion dollars and doesn't have any profitability. American Airlines has more profit than Amazon. And, and so you, I've seen this irrational Ubers, Ubers valued at $80 billion a year. Hell, they lose $2 billion a year. And we're back to that 
the same damn thing that I lived through from 94 to 2000 where people are saying, well, they don't have any profit. Dude, they got 2,000 clicks a day and their website's visited by 40,000 cookies a day. It's like, well, when you go to Starbucks, when you go to Starbucks, you you buy coffee with freaking clicks. I, I, you know, in in my world, you you have to pay money. So you have all of these, I, I mean, I, you look at the value of Uber and Airbnb and oh yeah, 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 uh, absolutely. Netflix is worth more than Disney. Oh, you're absolutely right there, buddy. What, what was your next best idea? I mean, we are in bubble territory in stocks, oh, sure. real for estate, sure. and bonds. And sure. the, the the geniuses that I listen to that get little things like Nobel prizes in economics, like Schiller. Um, he, he's, he thinks this market is 50% overvalued. Same thing with the real estate. All you got to do is track rental rates from mortgage rates. Um, anyway, it's insane. Thanks for giving me that ulcer again. Um, but um, Well, it, it wasn't to talk about their valuations because I get the – we're on, what, eight or ten years of a bull market. Corrections happen every five. So I know <laughs> we're, we're way overdue. I, I, I mean, we're way overdue. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that there are cruise companies that are going to the exact same ports of call as Disney's. Disney's is sold out at a 30% premium and Carnival can get you on this weekend. So why in dentistry are we, are we saying us as dentists? Do you have to differentiate yourself? It doesn't mean you have to have a 13,000 square foot practice like mine. I'm not, I'm not here to tell anyone that the way to do dentistry is my way. Dentistry can be done any way you want, but it has to be done with some form of value proposition to the patient. If you want to be open for 12 hours, that probably could be your cheapest form of marketing is convenience. If you want to be seven to seven or, or even like, look, there could be a concept where you want to just create the Airbnb of dentistry where you could take this guy that closes at five and pimp out his office or rent out his office from 530 to 10 to share the facility. But there is other ways to differentiate and it's us, it's incumbent, incumbent upon us as business owners to innovate. Business is innovation. So Airbnb, Uber, all these companies that just gave you an ulcer, what they did do really well, and maybe they don't make money yet, but they innovated. They just flipped everything on its head. And that's what we as business owners need to do. We need to flip everything on its head and create a value proposition that's unlike anybody else's. Well, you know, um, you know, you could say the same thing about Apple uh, versus uh, Android or Samsung. I mean, um, Apple still um, – I mean, they, they have the highest profit margins because they know there's a market for just excellence. I mean, if you're going to be staring at your smartphone four hours a day, why would you want a droid? I mean, they know there's a – why is Warren Buffett buying – yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about any of these companies. I love Netflix and Airbnb. Their business models are great. That has <laughs> nothing to do with that. But stocks at the end of the day are a weighing machine, and they only weigh earnings. So once you uh, – and, and, and I would explain price earnings really quick to these young kids because I can explain it real simple. Um, you know, Warren Buffett, um, you know, he um, – if uh, price earnings is 30 that means that if I buy your company for a dollar, it'll take you 30 years to pay me back. Now, when you buy things on earnings in dental offices, you know, it's four to six. Think about this. If you bought a dental office and worked it hard and all the profit went back to pay back the dentist in four to six years, you'd say, well, okay, that, that's a good deal. I'm going to do it. I'd rather do it in four years and six, but a four to six times multiple EBITDA, that's good. Well, what if the guy said to you, no, it'll, it'll take you 30 years? You'd say thirty years. I'm twenty five. I mean, I'd be fifty five. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna work for you for thirty years uh, to pay back the, this price. Well, that's what you're doing with a stock. 
when it's trading at 30 times earnings, um, it, it, it's complete insanity. So just because something's good doesn't mean that you're willing. Look, look at when they used to bring um, uh, people over to the United States uh, where um, indentured servants. How long did an indentured servant have to work the farm uh, for yeah. the price of being transferred? Seven years. Now, would have indentured servant, would he have done it for 30? Hell no. So why are you doing something an indentured servant wouldn't have done 200 years ago? Can I tell you why? Because when you're, when you're talking about price to earning ratio, you've got to also look at the forward appreciation of the stock. Everybody was laughing at me when I said, I'm going to buy uh, Facebook at $28 a share. Because like, what are you doing? But I was paying money to Facebook on a monthly basis. They're like, what are you paying money for? I'm like, I'm promoting some of our posts online. I'm promoting some of our social media. And now you've got Facebook at 185, which is what? Like just two, three years ago. And their PE is at 30, meaning their earnings are uh, $6 times 30. They're 180. But if they're growing fast, it could be an, it could be worthwhile. And that's to just bring a correlation to dentistry, because I know we got kind of tangential here, is I'm asking the dentist to invest in their business as well. I'm asking the dentist to say, you know, re, if you have that, uh, if your your consult room is a converted bathroom and there's still the toilet there and the table over it, if your carpet hasn't been changed in seven or eight years and you're going off to Gordon Christensen learning how to polish your prep more, realize that patients are grasping at value. They don't understand your quality of your margin. They don't understand the quality of your dentistry. I wish they did. So they're inferring value, perceived value from the way your team treats them and the way your place looks. The number one indicator of how people recommend hospitals, funny enough, is the perception of how it looks. You know when you recommend that crappy Mexican restaurant, you have to kind of describe it to your friend like, oh, you got to go to Casa whatever. It's a real crap hole. It's a real dump. It's in the back of a, you know, a shopping center. But trust me, the food is really good. You feel bad about making that recommendation. You don't feel bad about saying, go to this hospital. They just did a brand new cancer center there. It's like, you know, 20 foot ceilings and, you know, or whatever. And I'm not saying you have to do 20 foot ceilings. I want to be careful because I, I got to be, I don't want people to think of, they have to do it my way. But if you're, if your office is three or four operatories and it hasn't been painted in 15 years and you have that sliding glass thing and a clipboard, that tends to make patients like you less is all I'm saying. Give people a reason beyond just your dentistry to like you more. Give them some chapstick. Put on protective eyewear. Invest in a pair of headphones so they could listen to something while, while you're drilling on them. Offer, offer nitrous. I mean, train your team to, to, to take better care of them. That's, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, when you, back, to, back to on that funnel where 300 people have to land for nine to call, nine have to call for three to come in, three have to come in. And, and, um, and by the way, um, I wish insur dental insurance companies would uh, share more information. They, they, just really, um, they just really have a very dysfunctional relationship with dentists because the, the, you know, the insurance company might give you $300,000 in, in a year. And they only hear from you one time because they didn't cover something. And you write in this letter, dear insurance, you know, you're horrible. You're, you're this, you're bad. You're, I mean, every fortune 500 company, they all network and party and vacation with their value chain. And then dentistry. Yeah, no, no, not, not their value chain though. They have a very functional relationship with profit and a dysfunctional relationship with the dentist, but they're going to work hard to take the dentist out. Delta dentals opening up their own clinics. They don't need the dentist. We're not their value chain. We're not their, su their supply chain. I mean, when you have Aetna buying CVS, you realize where the future of the insurance company is going. They're going direct to consumer. They're not here to make us happy.
Well, uh, let, well, let, let's talk about being 55 years old and seeing this Radio 4. So, you know, 30 years ago, Cigna thought the same thing. They thought, well, why am I going to pay Craig and Howie to do all this dentistry and they make all this money? I'm just going to start opening up my own dental clinics. And what did they do? They opened up a ton of dental lines. And who was the other one who did it? Uh, Kaiser Permanente, a nonprofit. Yeah. They opened up nine. Sears did it. Sears did it. Yeah, Sears. So, so, let, let, so let's look at two big insurance companies. Let's just look at Cigna and Kaiser Permanente. And Kaiser Permanente opened up all these dental offices. They were losing their butt. And then what did their CEOs decide? They say, they say well, let, just like you said, people don't wash rental cars and they realized that all their employee associates weren't hustling they were referring out all the molar endo they were they were only you know they they would want to schedule on an eight-hour day eight single patients and each one of them needed a do on a bicuspid and they were losing so what did kaiser do they shut down all their dental offices except for in oregon where there was a legal trust issue where they uh, said to provide medical and dental, and they closed down the dental. They were in violation of their trust. Cigna, the same thing. They had all these dental offices. They closed them all down. Uh, Sears. I mean, everybody thinks it's easy money, but but what what you said, you know, people don't wash rental cars. When you graduated school, three to four hundred thousand dollars in debt, and the average liquid practice on the market is seven fifty, and you find yourself a million dollars in debt. Did you see the front page of the Wall Street Journal today? Yeah, um, I did. I saw that one million, that orthodontist. Yeah, so so when that orthodontist, guess what? Let me tell you something about uh, student loan default rate. If you have less, almost all the student loan default rates are under the $20,000 owed mark. You were never serious to begin with. Once you have over $100,000 of student loans, there is almost no default. You're yeah. freaking committed. So guess yeah. who's going to be the hardest working Orthodontist. I mean, his name's going to be Mike Maru. He's on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. He He's graduated. working for corporate, though. He's working for corporate. Well, I mean, I mean that guy. I mean, you, you, he can't go bankrupt. He's an orthodontist, and the richest countries in the world. He will figure out a way to do this. He's going to have to, you know. He's it's it's a crazy story, but the bottom line is, um, if Cigna. And if Delta Dental and Kaiser Permanente, if they all want to go up and open up a bunch of chain of dental clinics, knock yourself out because history uh, beats yeah. itself. It's, you know, I've already seen this rodeo. And if I live to be, they'll probably do it. They'll fail again. If I live to be 80, I'll see someone trying it all for the third time. Um, I want to go back one thing to marketing. Well, try, try again. Howard, I think, listen, I, you know, they, they, they were pioneers. And listen, I'm not, I'm not on their side. You know, these guys don't give a crap about us. But they were pioneers in the 70s and 80s. Now they have a successful model to go. So why they, they, they look at the Heartlands and the Aspens and the Sage and all these different corporations that are doing it successfully. Now there are seasoned operations people that run 500 dental clinics across the country and they're doing it well. I mean, they're making money. So why is it not that they would just copy that? You can't say they tried it and they failed. They're, they're going to get smart. They're smart people. I mean, aren't DSOs getting better? I mean, in general, I mean, DSOs tried, they, they tried to make a push in the 80s as well. And they failed. They came back around. They learned a lot. You know, the first car wasn't really that well. It smoked a lot. It made a lot of noises and people stuck to it. And now cars work. So speaking of DSOs, uh, you had on uh, Scott Loon, uh, a new model yeah. of a DSO. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on Scott Loon and his new model DSO? So... So we, I don't know Scott very well. Um, I heard him lecture and people on the podcast. Interesting guy. I don't, I don't know enough about what he's doing to comment, 
But what I do believe is that right now we've seen generation one and generation two DSO. So if we were to equate it to the hotel world, we've seen the days in and holidays in the Ramada Express of the DSO. I do believe, and I'm actually working hard with Peter, we're trying to shape something. I believe there's a generation three DSO. It, it will be well run and it would be like what would be like the um, the Hyatt Place or Ritz Carlton, where there's actually a value proposition. You know, I, I I think that many people go to the DSO right now, 55, 65 year old dentist. Screw it, I can't take it anymore. Let me pull my chips off the table and give me money, and then in three years and one nanosecond, I'm released. But that is not the long-term value proposition for the DSO. I think the DSO retaining doctors and giving them a piece of the upside is where it's at. So I, you know, Pete and I are working on this concept together where we're, we're trying to formulate something where dentists can come on board and work together to create more organizational value. I think that's third generation DSO. So you'll get some amount of your practice, but the real value is growing the parent organization, creating that alignment. The same way I want doctors buying in at my practice at the local level, I want doctors coming together for organizational value at the top level. And I think there's a lot of people that are just accumulating two, three, five, and 10 dental offices to just literally pump them up as an aggregate and dump them out. Because if you could acquire a practice at a five or six EBITDA or maybe a four EBITDA, accumulate or aggregate them into a group of 10 or 20. So let's say you have 10 $1 million practices, but each practice is kind of crappy. A, 10, a bag of 10 $1 million pra- crappy practices does not make a beautiful practice. But the market thinks so, and the market will pay you, you know, a 10 or 11 EBITDA on that aggregate. And then it all falls apart. We've seen PE come in. PE does not typically help companies. There's statistics that show that PE does not make companies more profitable like they tell they, that they are. They extract profit for short-term goals, and they flip you. And then they kind of poop you out and hope someone else, other PE buys you. And I just think that cycle is abusive to dentistry and is abusive to the profession. And it hurts our patients and it hurts our people. And I don't want to see dentistry get um, abused in that fashion. So I, that's, that's my um, monologue on that. I just think the current state is bad for dentistry. And I, I want to fix that. I want to be a part of that change. Well, it's simply a hot potato. Nobody wants to hold it. A private equity will go roll up 10 or 20, then they, they flip it to another private equity, and then that guy will buy 10 or more, and they just keep flipping it. If, if it was a working business, right. they would go to Wall Street that's it's been there Ponzi since 1850 underneath, standing underneath a tree, and they would do an IPO, and it would be on NASDAQ, and you and I and all their employees. Uh, the DSO, I mean, talk about... Um, 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 people don't wash rental cars. Uh, if it was publicly traded, they could always be taking earnings, buying back shares of stock, and then giving it to their uh, employees, their dentists, their hygienists, their, their huh. team, their staff. But it's yeah. not a working business model. Um, well, they, it is, is Wall Street's governing it. So if you can buy at this valuation, pump it together and have this valuation, there's an arbitrage in the valuation. So all you need to make your business model successful is keep consuming or aggregating dental offices. And we all know, as we spoke about, money is really easy right now. So when you got people giving the you know PE billions of dollars, all they have to do is aggregate dental practices. But it's more of a Ponzi scheme than an actual business model because if you stop consuming, then what do you really have? Are same store sales growth happening at most of these DSOs? I don't. I don't know. 
I don't know if they're all like that. I, I want to ask you, uh, this is Dentistry and Sensor. I can't believe we already uh, went over an hour. My God, I could talk to you for 40 days and 40 nights, but I got, I got, uh, it's an hour and three. I got to wrap this up, but I, I got to keep going. Um, you are a pioneer for eradicating childhood tooth decay and founded the All-Star Smiles Foundation uh, with, uh, it used to be the Marlins, now he's with the Yankees, Gianna Carlos, Stanton. But, um, you know, when you go into pediatric dentistry, they only have one dentistry uncensored polarizing issue where it split the herd in half and they kind of get nasty with each other. And it's with silver diamine fluoride. Uh, and, and that stuff is sold uh, in your backyard. Uh, there's only one FDA approved silver diamine fluoride uh, that's uh, in Florida. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think of uh, that? Oh, wow. You're asking something really out of my wheelhouse, Howard. I got to be honest, I don't have any opinion on it. Uh, the charity, I'll speak to the charity. Um, we have, you know, pediatric dental advisors on the charity, but John Carlo um, is the highest paid athlete in the history of sports. He has a $325 million contract. Um, and part of that contract was he had to stipulate that it was a charitable donation. He got hit with a 95 mile an hour fastball to his face in 2014 and uh, broke all of his teeth. And he was sent to me through a friend I know in LA. And I used the Sarac on him and made him like a, you know, four to, or six to uh, enter a bridge. And um, we were doing a lot of charity at the time and he could kind of feel what we were, you know, our culture and our, 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 our noble cause beyond just making money. And uh, we decided, or he decided rather to do the charity with me. So now I'm charged with creating a national alliance of dentists that want a partner to um, help children's dental decay because the number one reason why a child was in the emergency room or miss school is because they have dental pain, which is kind of crazy in a first world country like America that we have that problem. But it's allstarsmiles.org, and um, we're putting together a national day of treatment in February. So if you're interested, please contact that website. As far as the fluoride issue, I'm really – I don't have any information or opinion on that. I'm sorry, Howard. Well, they are in your backyard, so I'm going to um, I'm gonna make you have to go uh, visit those guys. Let's see. where. I will. What city are they in? Uh, contact us. Um, they're in West Palm Beach, Florida, and you're in right – Yeah, it's 20 minutes away. It's twenty minutes away. Well, you know what they they have a um, they're they're having a new charity. It's called uh, you know GV Blacks the Father of Modern Dentistry, and they're having a um um a back in black t uh, nonprofit or uh, a charity campaign. Uh, Jeanette McLean, pediatric dentist, has been on the show. Was on the cover of the New York Times talking about this. Uh, she actually bought one of those shirts and gave it to me. And uh, she must think I'm a pig because she she sent me a two XL. Right. Oh, will you oh. tell her I'm only five seven? Five seven fatties only wear an XL. I mean, yeah. come on, only six foot five fatties wear a two XL. But anyway, I, I wish you I wish you would really get together with them because it, it is a is an extremely polarizing uh, issue. I I never thought I'd live long enough to see a debate between two pediatric dentists. I mean, they're kind of <laughs> like they're kind of like endodontists and oral surgeons. They they all agree on everything. They only start disagreeing when you get into occlusion and TMJ. <laughs> Or TMD, and then all hell breaks loose, and you're looking at like ten major world religions, uh, all um, saying all these different things. That's what's confusing to the kids in dental school is they always think, well, how do you explain TMD if the elders can't even agree on TMD? But pediatric dentistry, they agree on everything, but this issue. And I would love to have your amazing mind, and and they have an amazing charity. And, but you know what? I, I um, don't like that shirt anymore. I wore it all the time. That uh, I just tweeted it out to my uh, uh, Twitter followers, um, uh, that shirt with GV Black, because 
it really was a throwback to my brain last night when I went and saw the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader uh, Ginsburg, and when Sandra Day O'Connor, who's from Arizona, was the first female Supreme Court justice, and uh, Ruth Bader was number two. So for like the first couple hundred years, it was all men. And then I started thinking, I was thinking during that show, when they were talking about that, that, that we tell everybody G.V. Black is the father of modern dentistry. Well, that, that's kind of sexist. Well, who's the mother of modern dentistry? Mm. So that's what, that's what I want to do. It says uh, back in black for G.V. Black. I want to find out who is the mother. Uh, Ryan, uh, why, don't you, why, don't, um, why don't we make a, a poll on that? We'll, we'll, we'll do a poll on that. Who would you say uh, is a and – then, and, and then Americans are nationalists, so they always say G.V. Black – was the father of modern dentistry, but when you go to Europe, they say it's Pierre Fouchard, a uh, hundred years before that. And and as luck would have it, when I was lecturing in Paris, I went to the Pierre Fouchard Museum, and guess what I saw? A GB Black exhibit. Closed for remodeling. Come back in three uh, months, and I'm like, Are you kidding me? So I'm gonna have to go back. Um, like um, Wally World for you. Yeah, I mean, it was under a remodel. But everybody in Europe says that Pierre Fouchard was the father of dentistry. And then, of course, America, everybody says G.V. Black. But it's so sexist. I almost felt dirty. And I, I'm, really, I'm really aware of sexism <laughs> because I grew up with uh, five sisters. And I saw it so much in my own house. Like, I could – we lived 100 yards from the Arkansas River. I could go swim and fish in a 24 hours a day. But my sisters couldn't get within 10 feet of the edge. Uh-huh. And, I thought, and I thought, well, my older, I had one older sister, G. Marie, that could have kicked my butt and my best friend's butt any day of the week. She was a track star. She was five foot nine. Her thighs were the size of my waist. I mean, she could <laughs> run me down like she was on a motorcycle, yet she couldn't swim in the Arkansas River because she was a girl. And, Wait, uh, how do you so- say that river? Our, yeah, in Kansas, it's Arkansas River, but once it crosses oh, wow. into Arkansas, it's the Arkansas River. But if wow. you call it the Arkansas River in Kansas, you're going to get your butt kicked. Maybe not yeah. you at 6'5". I'm sorry. I just, that just hurt my ears when I heard you say Arkansas, but that's fine. As long as, <laughs> as, long as that's cool. I just want to make sure. But, hey, um, my God, I uh, love all that you do for dentistry. Uh, I love your mission. And, and, and what I'm also hearing is, you know, when you, when you talk about the final plots is that, yeah, all every business model is always reinventing itself. I mean, it just keeps going and going. So you're saying we're on the third generation DSO, but you know what I'm waiting for is in healthcare, their DSOs and with our brother physicians, uh, they they've uh, done things at the high end. They have Mayo Brothers, they have the Mayo Clinic, they have the Cleveland Clinic, they have MD Anderson, they have Scripps. The Mayo Brothers were the ones in Minneapolis, St. Paul, were the good Midwestern heart people, and the Mayo Brothers are thinking, oh my God, when when these old folks have millions of dollars of assets, they've been wheat farmers for three generations, and now mama's got breast cancer, they will literally sell the farm for the best care. And the Mayo brothers were the first one that says, man, people value their life more than their cars and houses and iPhones. I mean, I mean go, to, go to your own wife and say, honey, uh, Sage and Gavin have a disease and, and they're going to die, and the only way we can uh, save them is we have to go to Scandinavia and give this guy $3 million for a pill, and it will cure the disease. 
would your wife sell every single thing you have and fly oh, to Scandinavia? Oh, that's such a morbid thought. Of course, man. Of course. I, I know. I know. So, but the but dentistry DSOs is still just convenience. Twenty four hours a day. Take your insurance. Where the physicians are a century ahead of us. And the Mayo brothers said. And by the way, they've only um, set up two satellite locations. One's here in my backyard in Scottsdale. One's in your backyard in Florida, where people realize that grandma will sell everything she's got if she's got a chance at maybe beating this disease and living a couple more years to see her granddaughter's uh, bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah of her grandson. And, and, um, and well, kudos to you for that little bit of Jewish uh, knowledge. I'm proud of you, man. Oh my gosh. Um, and then look at Cleveland Clinic. I mean, the, I, I go to the Cleveland, Cleveland's so amazing. You got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They got, uh, um, but Cleveland Clinic, you go there. I mean, you, you would think you're standing in the Middle East. I mean, yep. their patients are flying in from anybody who's got money. When you go around the world, they have a joke. They say, you know, uh, they say in, in, when you're in the Middle East or you're in Asia or South America or Africa, when you get sick, you don't need a doctor. You need a pilot and you need to go to America. And yep. if you had all the money in the world, you'd fly to America and go to the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, the MD Anderson, the Scripps. But well, dentistry's DSOs. Howard, there are, there are equivalents in dentistry, though. There are, I mean, maybe not on the scale of the Mayo Clinic, but there are people that fly around the world to go see Dr. Michael Appa in New York. There are people that go to him and they fly to his clinic in Dubai. So we have the beginnings of the Mayo Brothers in uh, Michael Appa's Appa um, Aesthetic Institute in um, Dubai. Multiple doctors, lab, everything. People are getting on planes and flying around the world to see him. So we can't, we can't just say people don't value their teeth like they value their health. Some people do, and they pay more. You know, they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to him sometimes to get it done. So it's, it's, I think that shift is beginning. But there's always been guys like that, though. Even back in our early ages, there were guys that were the guys to go to. So I, I see dentistry shifting that way as well. I have scores of patients who fly over a thousand miles to treat me. Of course, they're all family members from Kansas getting free dentistry, but still, still doesn't matter. It still, still counts. You don't still. have you don't have to disclose the last part of that. You just say to your patients, "I have scores of patients flying thousands of miles to come see me." And who and cares? If they ask you why, then you have to tell them that's your family. It's free, but you just leave it at that. And, and and I even have to buy their damn plane tickets. I mean, it just, the story just so, keeps getting. The more I keep talking yeah. to the story, just the worse it gets. Yeah, but, don't uh, that part out too. Hey, buddy, uh, love you to death. Love everything you're doing for dentistry. Love your podcast. Um, thanks for uploading Dental Town. You you need to upload. Uh, um, um, you've been uploading. Uh, yeah, upload them on the Dental Town podcast. I can't believe. Uh, there, there's now 60 dentists uploading their podcasts on Dentaltown, and I will um, make sure. Yeah, and, I'll, and, I'll and some, some of these guys, like there's one podcast called "Ideas to Make Your Practice Go," and just on Dentaltown, he just passed 650,000 views. Uh, because what they're doing is they're getting in their car. They got an hour commute to and from work. A lot of these people email me and say they listen to 10 hours a week of dental podcasts. And there's guys like you who put out one show a week. So they need nine more hours. And so they, uh, you know, they get, uh, I noticed people get tired of me uh, when they're watching on YouTube much faster than when they're just listening on the audio file. See, you have a face for YouTube. I have a face for iTunes, uh, but they're uh, they're listening. <laughs> they're listening to this. Uh, they're listening to dental podcast because they don't want to hear about Benghazi and emails and Trump and Hillary and Putin and all that stuff. But hey, buddy, Craig, thank you so much for giving yeah, me an hour of your life coming on the show and talking to my homies. 
I would like to acknowledge you as well for all you've done for dentistry. I um, got a lot of my formative information on Dentaltown back when I um, was just in that rapid consumption of knowledge stage of my career. And I really appreciate all you've done and your commitment to dentistry and your love for our profession. So it's really been my honor here, Howard, and I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Thank you, buddy. Well, if you're really, really grateful, then you'll write a damn article in Dentaltown Magazine, which goes to 125,000 dentists every month. That'd be a great article. Done. Nice. Done. Ryan, send him an email and uh, send me an Tom, email. Tom G. Kobe has been the editor since uh, uh, 2000. He's been on my team 18 years and um, um, he's an amazing guy. Sam is the, uh, the editor, but Tom G. Kobe is the dental. He's a dentist in Chandler and uh, Arizona, but uh, I'd really love that because uh, they need more motivation, leadership, inspiration. And, uh, and uh, maybe you should address what I really like you to address, address anything you want, but there's, there's two major themes that they're, can't, will they ever be able to pay off their student loans? Uh, and number two, my office is, I mean, I'm in the middle of the Midwest, and my office has been flat for 10 years. Um, they just need something to kind of get it going again. You know what I mean? And you're an inspirational, motivational leadership guy. And uh, thanks again for all you do. Yeah, thank you, buddy. Appreciate being here. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Ryan. Quality experiences, quality dentistry, quality interactions, and good relationships. Those are the most important metrics of a business. Well, I'm a third generation dentist, so dentistry is my life mission. I absolutely love creating this type of environment where we're team centric, we really care about our people. I really feel this is my life purpose. I really feel that it's not just dentistry, it's not just taking care of patients, it's taking care of the community and inspiring people. It's what I live for. Dental anxiety is extremely common. When I have patients come in all the time and they tell me, Oh, I'm nervous. I, you know, I'm into the dentist in years. I tell them that they're normal, that they're not abnormal. I don't think that anyone should feel like they're the only one that ever feels that way because most people feel that way. Even I feel that way. People find that this is a totally new experience and it's a pleasant one. And leaving here, they say, I will never have to worry about going to the dentist again because I know you guys care about me and will take the very best care of me. I was a police officer for 20 years. And of those 20 years, I spent 16 years as a member of the SWAT team. But interestingly enough, one of my true fears has always been going to the dentist. And Spodak Dental was the one place of all of them that was able to take that fear away from me. From rolling into the parking lot to the time that I left was just so different and professional and meticulous and clean and technologically advanced. I don't fear the dentist anymore. And that's why I'm a lifelong Spodak dental patient. It doesn't smell, sound, or feel like a dental office, and that's what Dr. Craig went for. He wanted it to be like a spa. People want to connect with their environment. You go into a building that doesn't have any windows, and you feel awful because you can't see outside. You don't know if it's raining or if it's sunny or cloudy or what. So you come into this building, and everywhere you look, it's transparent. You can see through the walls, through the building, um, and you see green everywhere. To come here for the first time, you're, you're in for a surprise as to how pleasant a dental appointment could be. We strive to be different, strive to give a different experience beyond that of the dental cleaning or I need a filling or my child needs a checkup. It's wonderful to work here. You have this sense of freedom, freedom to pursue your growth and learning as we grow and as we learn ourselves, we can translate that to our patient care. It's a lot of fun just coming to work and having a lot of smiling faces. It, uh, it affects the patients and it affects the doctors. It's not just the smiles, but also the, the, the location, the facility, the daylight, the trees. Everything makes the people that work here and the patients just feel good. 
I started the practice in June of 1976. This is our second and most recent location. After 49 years of dentistry, I've accumulated a vast amount of knowledge, so I have the opportunity now to teach dentistry and to help some of the new dentists handle some complex situations. It's easy to work here, very easy, because you're never alone. The whole idea of, of the culture here, everyone being on the same page from the front receptionist to the surgeon to the restorative dentist to even, even our cleaning lady has the same values as uh, all of us do. We're on the same page. So um, Spodak is unique because we have all of the specialists under one roof and I'm honored because I get to be one of the general dentists. So I'm like the quarterback um, of the treatment. So I get to coordinate between all the different specialists so that when we have a patient that has an extensive treatment plan, we keep everything organized and in sync with each other. We live in a very fast world now and people want, you know, in and out. So we give them exactly what they want. They can come in for a cleaning get a filling, get a root canal, extraction, implant, bonding, whitening, whatever, all in one place, all in one day. It's just very uh, efficient to do dentistry that way. And I think it's the wave of the future. And I think my son has, has uh, really captured that in this practice. Their integrity in the community, how professional they were, I just knew they were a dental group that would definitely give the best of care to their patients. My life work is to recreate dentistry, and it doesn't necessarily have to be here. What we do within these four walls can be a prototype for other offices so that they can learn and do things that we do. I want people to copy. I want patients to benefit. It's, for me, it's all about the benefit of the patient. And if we're doing our job well and we're inspiring others to do more in the industry and in our dental field, then I feel a, an immense sense of completion. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast source. Check out BulletproofDentalPractice.com for video interviews and text BULLETPROOF to 345-345 to stay connected to us for special announcements. Have a great day.